This new sermon series I've entitled is called The Story Of, and then each week we will look at a different aspect of the story. The reason I chose this title is because ten times Genesis has these divisions of how it's organized with the phrase, the story of. And so we're using that as the sermon title and series title. I figured it'd be wise for us to start with a story. How's that sound? Once upon a time, long, long ago, there was a great civil war in the heavens amongst the different gods of the world. As the war was growing and escalating, it came to a great and climactic battle between Marduk and Tiamat. Marduk tracked down Tiamat, and even though she tried to put a spell on him, he was too clever for her. He challenged her to a one-on-one battle. She accepted, and they fought hard until Marduk caught her in his net, blowing the great four winds of the world at her. Tiamat, in turn, tried to swallow up Marduk, but he sent even greater winds like tornadoes. They raged through her body, holding her mouth open. She swallowed them up, and it blew her up like a balloon. Marduk then shot arrows at her, pierced her stomach and her heart, and she died. As Marduk came over to her dead carcass, he straddled her in victory. But now he needed to know what to do with its remains. So he smashed her body into different pieces, and the top half he ripped off, and it became the sky. Her eyes became the source of the river Tigris and Euphrates. From the other half, Marduk made the mountains and the land. He surveyed the great expanse of the sky and the land that he created and then chose the land of Babylon as his home here on the earth. Lastly, he created humans to work that land where he would be with them. This, my friends, is the story of the heavens and earth according to the Babylonians. What do you think about it? Does it sound crazy? Does it sound strange? Does it sound similar? This is one of several stories that were popular at the time of Genesis when it was put together around the other books of Moses. These stories have been called Theomachi, Theomachi, two parts, Theo. You guys know what that is? God. Maki, meaning war, fighting, or struggle. There are several stories like this. I just picked one of them because the Babylonians are seen often as the enemies of the Israelites. So it seemed good for us to compare and contrast the Babylonian story with the Israelites' story. Let's now compare it with the words of Genesis chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles open, like I said, it can be found on page 1 starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the light was good. 
And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens, to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God sent them in the expanse of the heavens, to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the water swarm. According to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast on the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. 
I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. And then in verse 4, you see the first time he says, These are the stories of the heavens and the earth. Generations is the word I mentioned earlier. That is, here is the stories that repeats ten times throughout the book of Genesis. How did chapter 1 compare with our story of creation from Babylon? Did you notice any differences? Did you notice any similarities? One key difference for sure is that in the story of Genesis 1, there is one God. He has no rivals, and there is no war or struggle between the gods of the heavens. The God of the Bible, from the beginning, is the sovereign creator who creates by the power of his word. Did you notice the ridiculous amount of repetition that's in chapter 1? But in particular, the one that says, and God said, he speaks, and it was so. Ten times you see these words, and God said. In verse 2, you notice the phrase that the Spirit of God, this is the Hebrew word ruach, you got to put the ch at the end of it, by the way. Ruach is the spirit. It's the breath of God. I think there's a textual link between this breath of God and the speaking of God in creation. This is how the heavens and the earth came to be. The ruach, the speaking power of God. If you flip over to chapter 2, you'll notice that as Adam is being formed and fashioned out of the dust of the earth, it's the ruach, again, that's breathing life into the man to give life to Adam. This is a very different picture, isn't it? There's no goddesses being ripped in half. There's no great battle between the gods. There is one creator God who speaks, and it was so. But there are similarities, aren't there? Notice, Mardoch chose the land of Babylon to make his dwelling, and he then created humans to then work for him. That's actually what we see here, too. God separates in chapter 2 a land called the land of Eden, and in that land, a garden where he walks with humanity. His presence is known. He dwells with them. And as he walks with them in this garden, he charges Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, to work and keep the garden. Oftentimes in these Babylonian stories or the similar ones from the Egyptians or the Sumerians, the people are slaves, though. So you see some similarities, but you see a stark difference, not just in the God who creates and how he creates, but the people who are on the earth. They are made in his image, Genesis 1 says. 
They reflect his likeness, and they're to rule over, not as slaves, but as lords. It's a very different picture. If we were to further read other accounts of creation stories, one of the other things you would notice is how similar that these gods or these kings in these different lands would create temples. And as they did so, these temples were often gardens. Hmm, that sounds familiar too. One Bible scholar has pointed out that it is well known these days with research and archaeology that kings and gods and the stories of their creation accounts made temples and had ceremonies to inaugurate their new temple that lasted seven days. And on the seventh and final day of that inauguration, the god would enter into the temple and his presence would take up dwelling place and rest inside of this temple. Now, I don't know if any of this interests you all in terms of background information as you read Genesis 1 and 2, but the parallels seem a bit strange, don't they? The bigger question is, is it important? Does it matter? Does it give us any context for understanding Genesis 1 and 2? And we could debate and discuss that. Some people look at these stories and say, ah, see, the Bible's just a copycat account. Or is the Bible taking familiar language that would have been known in the world of the Israelites and saying, hey, it's kind of like what you've heard, but it's a lot different. That seems to be the way the Bible actually communicates from beginning to end. It's using familiar things that are around the world of the hearers and saying it's kind of like that, but it's actually very, very different. The question I want to ask for you is, what if Genesis 1 and 2 is having a dialogue with the worlds of their day and not so much the worlds of our day? Maybe some of you in this room think that the earth is billions of years old. Maybe some of you think that the world is maybe several thousand years old. Seven, eight, nine, ten thousand years old. Maybe some of you think that humans came from an evolutionary process, and others of you think that humans came, just as it says in Genesis 2, dust was formed, clay, and God breathed into them. And that's what the Bible says, so that's what happened. There is no evolution. But what if these stories in Genesis 1 and 2 were not intended to answer those kind of questions? What if its dialogue partners are not those kind of scientific modern partners? What if it's the Babylonians and the Egyptians and the Sumerians? What if Genesis 1 and 2 would be better to be called a temple story? I'm going to use this phrase throughout the rest of my message, temple story. I want to quickly define it to make sure we're all understanding what I mean by it. When I say temple, I'm saying a story about the presence of God and his people being in union with one another and call it a temple, call it a sanctuary, generally just call it sacred holy space. Either way, that's what I mean when I say the phrase a temple story. Now, the reason why I say temple story is because of the close parallels not with Egyptian or Babylonian temples, but with the temple that the Israelites created that God instructed them to create. 
What if God is setting aside a place on the earth where his presence would dwell with mankind and there would be no barriers between them? What if Genesis 1 and 2 is more of a sanctuary, holy space story than a story about all of the questions you and I have about the great cosmos and how it came to be? Now, maybe I'm making some of you nervous. I don't know. This is a much debated, difficult topic that has led some people to throw away their faith altogether, and it has led other people to believe their faith all the more because of their research of some of these issues. Let me give you three pastoral words. These are three words that, as I've looked at these things, I think might be helpful before we further look at this idea of the temple story. Pastoral point number one. I am by no way saying that Genesis 1 and 2, and especially the Bible, is denying the fact that Jesus Christ is our creator king. Amen and hallelujah. That is true. The Bible makes plain that Jesus Christ is our creator king, and he made everything in the world. Did you remember our scripture reading earlier in the service? John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, The Word that was with God in the beginning, that Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Pastoral point number one is that all through the New Testament, in John chapter 1 and in Colossians chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, you see these wonderful statements about Jesus Christ being our creator king. Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 and following say that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible Thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Last year we studied the book of Hebrews, as I mentioned. In chapter 1 it says, In these last days God has spoken to us through his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. And in him Everything is upheld in the universe by the word, and it's the word of Jesus' power. Jesus' powerful word created. Jesus' powerful word sustains. Pastoral point number two. If I'm not trying to suggest or deny that God created everything, then the implication of this is that we should praise God and trust him because he is our creator. As we look at Genesis 1 and 2, as we look at the rest of the Bible, as we consider this idea that Jesus is our creator, this should lead us to worship, praise, and trust. Let me give you one example. Earlier in the spring, I preached a message from this passage, Psalm 121. Anyone remember? I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? Now, the reason he's asking, where does my help come from, is because he's looking to the hills and the mountains. He's a Jerusalem journeyer that's afraid of the dark roads on the road up to Jerusalem. 
If you remember Jesus' story in the Good Samaritan, you remember that the man traveling down that road gets beat up because there's robbers and thieves and bandits on those roads? Okay, so the man is looking at the hills and he knows that they're scary. And he then asks the question, where is my help going to come from? Answer, my help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. Read your Bible and notice how many times encouragements are given to Old Testament and New Testament believers that you should trust and worship and find your peace with God because he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. Any of you here need help this morning? Where does my help come from? Anyone need help with your marriage? Anyone need help with family drama? Anyone need help with their physical health? Anyone need help with their spiritual sin? Anyone here need help with evangelism and caring for the lost and the hurting? Anyone here sick and tired of the violence in this world as we turn on our television day after day? We need help. Furthermore, we need hope. And if we don't root ourselves in the doctrine of creation, that Jesus is our creator king, I don't know if I have any help for you this morning. And I certainly don't have any hope. How can we as Christians say we believe in Jesus and say that the center point of believing in Jesus is that he rose again from the dead, but then we say, well, I'm not sure that he created everything. I think evolution did that or something to that effect. Science just seems to contradict that idea. How are you going to put your hope in the new creation if you don't believe that God has power in this creation because he made it all? The centerpiece of our hope is knowing that the Jesus who died and rose again is the Jesus who created everything and will recreate everything. So did God create the earth in seven days? Does the word day mean 24 literal hours? I actually don't know for sure, but to be continued in weeks to come in Genesis series. For now, pastorally, I would like to say, if you don't believe that that's even a possibility, I don't know if you're understanding the Bible like all of the Bible. I don't think you're understanding the heart of the gospel is the resurrection from the dead. God has power over life and death. Jesus speaks to the waves and they obey him. Jesus' words are power. So whether it's seven days, seven hours, seven minutes, or seven seconds, we should believe that God is the one who can speak and things happen. If you don't think that's possible, then how in the world do you believe in the resurrection? And if you don't believe in the resurrection, then frankly, you're not a Christian. And you don't have hope in a world to come. Which brings me to my third and final pastoral observation. We need to be reminded that it ultimately takes faith for us to believe in a God who created everything. Maybe that's an obvious point, but let me remind us from Hebrews chapter 11 the chapter on faith, what it says in verses 1 and following. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, for the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. 
Verse 3. Listen to this. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. If anyone believes that God, Jesus, created everything, it's because of your faith. Notice verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11 says that this faith is not a blind leap. Just believe whatever because the Bible says so. We believe with assurance. We believe with conviction. Things that we know are true, even if we can't see them. And if you're here today and you're a visitor and you're not a Christian or you know yourself to be a really skeptical Christian or something along those lines, let me just point out, none of us were there when the world was made. All of us have faith in how we think the world came to be. All of us have faith in who the creator of the world is. The question I have for you, who, what are you putting your faith in? Are you sure that it is reliable and trustworthy? We as Christians put our faith in God and God alone. We put our faith in his word and we believe the things that he has said. Even when we're tempted to quickly believe men and women because they have PhDs or graduate degrees from some Ivy League school like Princeton or Harvard, let us be freshly reminded, as Christians, we should not trust the wisdom of men but the Word of God. Do you realize that some of you here today might think of yourself as a simple person? I'm not very smart. I don't know about all these philosophies. I don't know science. I don't know biblical Hebrew. I'm kind of just an ordinary Joe or Jane. Do you realize that if you here today believe by faith that God created by His Word all that is seen and was not made out of things that are visible, you, my friend, are much wiser than thousands of Cambridge and Oxford scholars who have been asking questions about the origins of the world and creation. Which reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1. It is written that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. Where is the wise one? Where is the scribe? Where is the debaters of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, is the wisdom of God. For foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men, and the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. Conclusion of pastoral points. Hear me out. When we turn to Genesis chapters 1 and 2, I think it would be better for us to look at this as a temple story, not because of modern science, not because of cultural stories like the Babylonian or Egyptian origins of how the world came to be. The reason I believe we should look at Genesis 1 and 2 more like a temple story 
is because ultimately the Bible is a theology book, not a geology book. Ultimately, it's a theology book and not a science textbook about physics. Ultimately, it's telling us about who our God is and why we are here. And I have 10 reasons from the text of Scripture itself. So here's, here's the test, I think. Some of you might hear these Babylonian Egyptian parallel accounts and say, wow, I'm kind of convinced just by that. But let's imagine none of us ever heard those. All we have is the Bible. Would we be able to discern from just reading the Bible that there's some sort of sanctuary temple connection being made in Genesis 1 and 2? Ten reasons for yes. Reason number one. Genesis 1 and 2 is the place where God speaks, not just in general, but to humans. And the temple is the place where God speaks and reveals himself to humans. Reason number one, God speaks to humans in temple sanctuary spaces. We're going to go quick. Reason number two. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 12. And I choose Leviticus because I believe that the Genesis accounts that we've just read that are before us were grouped together in a book called the Pentateuch or the books of Moses. There's the first five books of the Bible and they're categorized, they're collected and edited by Moses and and often probably written by Moses. And so Moses is organizing all of this material and giving it to the Israelites before they enter the promised land. So that's his audience, and he's telling not just one story in Genesis 1 and 2, he's telling more than one stories in these five books. So if we put them together collectively, we'll read Leviticus 26.12, and we will see the same verb in Leviticus 26.12 for the presence of God, and here's the language, of God walking back and forth. Now, think for a second, where do you know God walking back and forth? Genesis 3, verse 8, and God walked back and forth in the coolness of the day with Adam and Eve. In the temple, where God's presence is, the same verbs are textually linked in Leviticus later on in these books of Moses to say that's what God's presence is like in the temple where God and humans meet together. Reason number three. Adam in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, is the first, and I'm going to use a strange word here, not just man. He is what I would be calling the first priest. In Genesis 2.15, if you even open your Bibles and you look and see these two words put next to each other, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work and keep. This word work is serve. And every time these two words throughout the books of Moses are put together, They're used for Israelites in service and worship to God or of priests. So it seems like he's not just being told, work the ground like a gardener, although that's probably true. Literally speaking, he's working the ground like a garden, but he's also working a temple, just like the priests later on in the book of Numbers are told, You're going to work and keep. You are to serve and guard and protect the temple. Reason number four. If we step outside of the Pentateuch and we read Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13. Feel free if you want, you can turn and see this to make sure that I'm not making this up. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13 is a passage that I believe is talking about the fall of Adam, not the fall of Satan, as sometimes people think 
In verse 13, it says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. And here's why I don't think this is Satan. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. Now, maybe for some of you, like, ooh, good one, Pastor Phil. But if you know your Old Testament really well, and these people are reading these five books together, where do these stones engraved and carved appear? On the priestly robe of all the priests that go into the temple. So here you have in verse 13 of Ezekiel some commentary of what's going on in Eden. You were placed in Eden, the garden of God, and stones were covering you. He's using, I think, symbolic language to say you were a priest. Like the priests would wear these gowns as they go into the temple. So that's reason number four. Reason number five that we should think of Genesis 1 and 2 as a temple is that the lampstand in the temple is an almond tree. So go to Exodus 25 later today and read through, check Exodus 25. So the next book after Genesis, remember, and these are all collected together. Exodus 25, the lampstand where the light is coming from is a tree. Anyone thinking tree of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? In the garden? Well, you should be. There's a connection between the lampstand and the way it's decorated and the tree that's in the garden. Reason number six. If you're not convinced by the lampstand, read all through the temple decorations. And those are the parts of the Bible. I know some of you, you've read the, read the Bible and you start in Genesis and it's interesting and then there's some genealogies and then, okay, you get some cool stories with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and then the Exodus, but then you get to the end of Exodus and then you read Leviticus and you're like, whoa. But here's one of those moments where if you read Exodus and Leviticus carefully, you read the temple instructions and you will see that carved on the walls of the temple decorations are palm trees, flowers, and cherubims. Trees, flowers, and cherubims. Where else do you see those three things? Gardens and an angel called a cherubim. Well, that's in Genesis chapter 3. Furthermore, reason number seven, water is flowing through the garden down and spilling out into these other rivers. And it says in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 13, the verse I just read just a second ago, Ezekiel 28, 13. You were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was on you. And then it says in verse 14, I placed you, and you were on the holy mountain of God. Eden, if you didn't know, and if you read carefully in Genesis 2, maybe we'll get to there depending on how much detail we go into this. But Eden is on a mountain, and the garden is on a mountain, and water is flowing from Eden, and it's giving life and water to the rest of the area around Eden. That's the description in Genesis chapter 2. So should we be surprised when we see this idea of mountain and water in temple symbolic language throughout Scripture? I don't think so. 
Reason number eight. Do you remember when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden in Genesis chapter 3? If you don't remember, that happened, okay? You can read it, Genesis chapter 3. They're kicked out of the garden. Where did the cherubim, this angel that we just referenced, where were they put on post? If you read carefully in Genesis 3, you'll see the gate on the east of the garden. Oh, yeah. The temple is facing east, and the door to go in and out of the temple is eastward, and to head into the Holy of Holies is to move westward, to move out of God's presence is to move eastward, and so we see another connection. I actually think that maybe throughout the Old Testament, there's, there's this idea that to move west is to move closer to God's presence, and to move east is to move out. Read Cain and Abel's story, and Cain is kicked out, and he's moved east. Furthermore, there's more connections that I could show, but let's move on to reason number nine. This passage in Ezekiel 28, I don't know if your Bibles are still open there, but it ends in verse 18 with this language. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. There it is. If, Genesis, uh, if Ezekiel 28 is talking about the fall of Adam in the garden of God, and he calls it a sanctuary, even if it's not Adam, although I think it is, even if he's talking about the serpent, he's calling the same place where the serpent was or Adam was a sanctuary. So if some of you are like, well, I want the word that says it's a temple or it's a sacred sanctuary space. There it is. Ezekiel 28, 18. Tenth and final reason, Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. God makes man in his own image, in the image of God. Do you know what the word image is in the Hebrew? It could also be translated icon, or like iconic statue. So get this picture in your mind. Genesis 1 is telling us in verses 26 and following that God, at the end of his creation, puts mankind somewhere on the earth. And we know from Genesis 2, it's the garden, and we believe that this garden is a temple. And if he's putting him in there, he tells him, I want you to fill and multiply the earth and rule and reign over it. So the idea is that as he works and as he procreates and has more children, he is to fill the earth with more image bearers of God. Basic idea. Okay, we're good so far. But here's the idea. That means that if humans are the very good of God's creation, if human beings are the image of God, the, the pinnacle of his creation, you could use this language, and I think it would make a tenth and final connection. God puts in his temple his glory. And his glory is to fill the whole garden as they reproduce and multiply. Fill the garden with the glory of God. What is the glory of God? The image bearers of God who represent the glory of God here on earth. And then you read the rest of the Old Testament and you start getting to chapter 9 of Leviticus and you see that when the temple tabernacle was first set up according to the instructions, do you guys know what happens? It's a crazy story. That the first temple 
in Leviticus. So at this point, think about it like this. The very center of these five books of the Pentateuch is this story in Leviticus 9 where they make the temple tabernacle and they consecrate it and they bless it and then fire falls down. And it says the glory of the Lord fills the whole temple. Now, I think that maybe some of these are better than other connections. Maybe some of you think, I don't get what you're doing here, and maybe you think some of these are crazy. But I think that they start to mount up, don't they? Like it's not just one or two different connections. Here's 10, I think, possibly good connections throughout the Hebrew Bible that if you just read the Bible carefully, you'd say, oh yeah, the the Garden of Eden is God's sacred holy space. It is where God and men dwell together. So why does that matter, though? Because it doesn't just fit with the books of Moses to think about Genesis 1 and 2 as the first temple space. It really tells you the story of the whole Bible. If the Garden of Eden is more of a temple story than anything else, or if that's a a central thing that's trying to be communicated, what if you see that in Genesis 3, as they are removed out of the temple, they lost that sacred space, and God in his kindness, through the actual tabernacle and temple of Israel, gives them a small replica and makes a promise to them that one day we're going to return back to this wonderful sacred space. And that even though there was all kinds of defilement of the Israelite temple, one day God keeps his promise and he sends this person onto the earth named Jesus. Here's where everything comes together. In the first scripture reading of this worship service, John chapter 1, I already read it once, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And he created everything. Remember that part? Do you know why we stopped at verse 14 on that scripture reading? And the word became flesh, and then here's the word that John uses, and he templed, he tabernacled, he made his dwelling with us. That's when you go, it all makes sense? Maybe don't hit yourself, though. Jesus Christ is the last and final temple in his body. He said, I will tear this temple down and three days later, rise it up again. That's the very words of Jesus. He saw his physical human body as the space where God and humanity comes together. Why? Because Jesus is fully God and fully man. There is the union, unity and union of God and humans in one space, the very human body of Jesus. It's the temple space. It's the sacred space. But what happens to that body? He came to his own, and his own knew him not. They rejected him. They spit on him. They crucified him. They hated him. And this sacred space gets treated like trash, just like all the other stories through the Old Testament, where they treat God's temple like trash. The good news, though, is that as Jesus rises again from the dead three days later, he proclaims forgiveness of sins for all who have been separated from the presence of God. So that as Ephesians 1 verse 10, remember this verse, through the work of Jesus, he unites heaven and earth back together again. That's Ephesians 1.10. The work of Jesus on the cross was to unite heaven and earth, God's space and man's space in union together again. 
Friends, if we understand the temple story in Genesis 1 and 2 as one of its primary themes for what God's trying to tell us in the book of Moses, but the whole Bible, now you understand the gospel. Now you understand what hope is in the resurrection of Jesus because when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, it's said that his body, his new temple, his new physical body as he's risen from the dead is the first of many signs to come of a new creation. So when we go to the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 21, here are the words of John as he sees a vision and says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth has passed away, and the sea was no more. And then read the rest of Genesis 21, and you will see that the new heavens and new earth is symbolically described as this huge cube-like temple that has all kinds of garden imagery. Read Revelation 21, 22, and see if you don't see a cube. Where else is there a cube? Ah, the Holy of Holies, where God's holy presence was in the temple. Cube, God's presence, Holy of Holies, and then all kinds of garden imagery. When you read the very last chapters of the Bible, you see a cubed-like garden city, all wrapped up in one image. Why does the Bible end that way? Because God and men will dwell together again, and it will be a huge garden-like city, bigger than almost the entire face of the United States. I think a lot of that is symbolic language to help you see that the temple fulfillment of Genesis 1 and 2 that was lost was recovered through Jesus and then will one day be fully restored and recovered. My friends, this is what we call the good news. This is the hope we as embassy Christians believe, put our hope in. I hope as you hear this story from beginning to end that you find its beauty, you see God's power, you're amazed at his wisdom, you're broken by his mercy and his willingness to redeem this creation. So I end with one final question. You've got your faith in something. Does whatever you have your faith in die on a cross for your sins and give himself for you? And does he promise hope, not just blind hope, but hope that one day these things will be made new? I urge you, I plead with you, put your hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to come this morning with a thankful heart and give you thanks for the story of our creator, King Jesus Christ. We thank you for the words of Scripture. We thank you for its unity, that Moses can write something 3,000 years ago, and we can read something by John several, several years later, and we can see your poetic beauty Lord, we thank you for the Bible. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his life, his temple body where God and man come together fully. We thank you for his death on the cross that redeems and restores this creation. As Romans 8 says, we are eagerly awaiting, we are groaning. The whole world is groaning and longing for that day like a woman groaning to give birth to its child. Lord, we long for that day and we pray now, come Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
Well, it's our custom that most weeks 